This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. So we have come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And in conclusion, Jesus in chapter 7 has given us four basic warnings. So first, he said that we must choose between two gates or two paths. Then, last week also, two kinds of prophets. And then today, we must choose and discern between two kinds of disciples and two foundations. So in his conclusion, actually, Jesus is not going to introduce anything new to us. He is rather synthesizing the piercing application of his sermon. He's bringing it together for us, and he is driving it home in such a way that, as many of us heard this this morning and have read on our own, shocks our system. We read this, and it might even be confusing. Certainly, it might be scary to some of us when we hear the starkness of the reality Jesus presents before us. Right? Maybe it wasn't so difficult before when we were maybe a little convicted when Jesus says, you've heard it said, uh, you should not murder, but I say to you not to even be angry because that is murder. We think, oh yeah, yeah, I should get better at that. But yet when Jesus says, some of you will call me Lord, but you never knew me, all of a sudden that might get our attention a little bit more. And that is exactly why Jesus is concluding in this way, to summarize his sermon and even to synthesize it. And I think it's important to realize that Jesus is preaching in this sermon to what we might call church people, not those who are religious and then irreligious or non-religious, but these are people who are following Jesus. They've come to hear him. They mostly are Jews. And yet Jesus still can make this contrast that some of them who know the right answers might actually not know him. Recently in the Chronicle of Higher Education, there was an article called The Celebrity Illusion, Why Does America Invest So Much in the Idea of Fame? And it's it's a long article, and it goes through many 
types of social science research. But what I found most helpful even was how it was applied to this culture around us that loves fame and that worships superficiality, right? It's, it's how I appear. And we talked about this a couple of times in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to read a couple of things from this article first. The article makes the point that increasingly people see becoming a celebrity or obtaining a celebrity lifestyle as a reasonable and worthy life goal. That my life goal becomes being famous or being a celebrity. And the author goes on to say that a lot of these people fall into a, quote, self-perpetuating celebrity-fueled cycle that goes something like this. Declining social mobility, or at least a sense of me being valuable, is diminishing. And therefore, valuable life options lead to, a lack of them, lead to increasing dreams of celebrity, fame, and fortune. And the reason is, is because we think to ourselves, well, now that I'm in my late 20s or my 30s or my 40s or beyond, I didn't quite make it as I thought, but I still have one hope. Maybe somehow I can become famous and that'll make it all better. If I can just become famous and maybe rich, but just famous, if I can become known, if I can become a celebrity, then I'll have a life that is valuable. And so this in turn quote, enhances the power and allure of celebrity. Why? Because it becomes this magic elixir. And it causes a focus on, in, on extrinsic aspirations that lead to actually less happiness and just distract us from the things in life that actually do matter. And of course, this is the chronicle of higher education. So what matters? Maybe education and advocacy for social change. But I think the point is well taken that in our lives, in this culture, we do feel the pressure to be valuable, but not for the sake of living a life that might be worthy of what Jesus says, but actually a life that would make us or allow us to be found as famous or a celebrity, or that we might be worth something due to this resume that we have achieved. And really throughout the sermon, Jesus is hitting right at this. What he's hitting at is the kingdom community of Jesus cannot settle for the mere superficial and spectacular. It actually goes way deeper than that. And that we all become distracted by mere outward appearance. And many of us have been taught to even, for example, always look busy at work, even if you're not. Why? So that you can appear like a good worker. It doesn't matter if you are or not. It doesn't matter if you're being effective. Just look busy. I was taught that in so many ways, right? It seems that many of us also have continued to believe that the busier we are in our lives, the more value we have or the more value we add to others. And although this is changing a bit, a lot of us believe that the legitimacy or value or even health of a church or an organization is all about the size. If it's big, then it's impressive. How big's your budget? How many people you have? It goes, it goes everywhere. What schools do your children go to? Where are they going to college? We love the spectacular and superficial, and somehow we think that informs our lives, that that would make us valuable. But 
the kingdom community of Jesus followers must push past superficial and spectacular to depth and to wholeness. And that, in fact, is exactly what Jesus has been calling us to this entire sermon, to wholeness or righteousness and to depth. And so today, Jesus, in his conclusion, I think we're going to look at two things. He shows us that wholeness or righteousness calls us to the ordinary, not just to the spectacular, but to the ordinary. So let's look at verse 21. In verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is continuing on from last week in this image of the wide way or the narrow way, and he's saying that you can't merely verbally ascribe to the narrow way. You actually have to choose to walk the path of the narrow way. And as one commentator so succinctly sums it up, perhaps no passage in the New Testament expresses more concisely and more sharply that the essence of discipleship is found not in words, nor in religiosity, or even in the performance of spectacular deeds in the name of Jesus, but only in the manifestation of true righteousness, which is doing the will of the Father. No words or random good deeds can substitute for the full picture of righteousness or wholeness given in this sermon. But you look at Lord, Lord, right? That's a construction that is to denote passion and commitment. It's not just Lord, but it's Lord, Lord, right? These people are passionate before Jesus, right? We know the right answer. We know your Lord. This clearly means we believe you are the divine one. You are the Lord. But yet, even with this emphasis, Jesus is clear that the entrance to the kingdom is not gained by a secret password, right? Like somehow, if you know the right words, Lord, Lord, that the door opens for you. But it's actually a certain type of life that leads to the kingdom. It's a certain type of following that leads to the kingdom. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has actually been describing this life the whole time. He's been describing faith. What he's doing as the sage, as the teacher, is he is calling all of his listeners to the wise and flourishing life as opposed to the foolish and superficial life. He's calling us to wholeness that's found in depth, not to mere spectacle that is defined by the surface. You see, the whole sermon has not been for mere information. And if we've been listening for mere information, then we've missed the point. But actually, the sermon is a confrontation, and it's a confrontation with Jesus himself, right? He says this, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. So really, this is a call to figure out how we're going to deal with Jesus' very words in the Sermon on the Mount. What is the proper response? And that's what we're going to talk about mostly next week. But this is what Jesus has been doing. So Jesus is saying, in essence, you can't call me Lord truly unless you've actually submitted to my lordship. There's no magic words to get into the kingdom. Have you submitted to my lordship and have you cast your entire life to my care? And then in verse 22, he says, on that day, now he's expounding, on that day, that day is judgment day. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. So he's talking about the same people. And then they'll say, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? What's happening here? Well, 
at judgment day, the response that they have to Jesus is the same posture that they've taken in all of their life, which is self-justification. That's what's happening here. They see Jesus and they say, Lord, Lord, look what I did. You see what I've done? Did I not do this? They point to the fact that they've been building a resume of spectacular their entire life, but doing so never in submission to the Lord himself and completely overlooking his call to their faithfulness in the obedience of ordinary life. But they point to their resume of the spectacular. They've just confessed a life of building this resume while ignoring the ordinary. And what's so, we we can't miss this. In trying to make a justification for themselves, they've actually testified against themselves. In trying to justify themselves, they've testified against themselves. Now, I know that some of us, when we see this passage, we see this text, we're terrified. And we think to ourselves, is this me? Will Jesus say that to me? And I want to point out that this teaching is not given to cause undue self-doubt in the believer. It's actually to exhort us not to be enamored with external gifts and powers without paying attention to the inner life and to ordinary obedience in day-to-day life. That's what this passage is for, right? So the whole sermon, Jesus has been describing a flourishing life, and not once has he mentioned that we should pursue the spectacular in this sense. Not one time did he say, those who are in the kingdom will do miracles. Those who are in the kingdom will prophesy. Not one time did he call his kingdom people to this, right? He actually spoke against it. When he said, listen, some of you in your ordinary obedience of prayer, make sure that you make a spectacle out of it by going into the street and yelling as loudly as you can, making sure that people hear your prayer. Why? So that you could be seen as righteous. It's all about performance. When, when he calls us to the ordinary giving of our resources and money to those in need, it was the Pharisees and the scribes who he spoke against when he said, All you do is make a spectacle of it by pulling out your trumpets and blasting so everyone can see it. So he actually has spoken against this on numerous occasions. So wholeness is actually a call to know Jesus and to put into practice what he has said. The word that has translated different different ways, 22 times in the sermon, poieo, we've translated it as to do, to practice, to bear fruit, to declare. But it's the same word Jesus keeps using over and over. And the point is, to follow me in the ordinary is to actually put into practice what I have told you. Why? It's because whatever you trust, you will live in light of. If you trust my words, then you will do them. If you're following me, then you will follow me in all of life. Now, for us, I doubt many of us are pursuing the spectacular of casting out demons. And I bet very few of us are pursuing the spectacular of even prophesying in Jesus' name. And I thought through many ways in which me and I think you pursue the spectacular and pay no attention to the ordinariness of following Jesus in day-to-day life, right? Because who wants to do that? 
I think one of the ways, and we, don't, we only have time for one, is that we all are committed to chasing the glow of spiritual experience, the spectacle, the spectacular of our experience. And this is very popular uh, in a world in which not only fame, but also rich spiritual experience is very valued. And it's talked about a lot. Right? It doesn't matter if you're reading a psychology magazine. It doesn't matter if you're reading the, the newest book on how to get things done. They're, sometimes they're very helpful. But you'll, if you discern, you'll see this underlying commitment to a powerful spiritual experience that then makes us and turns us into the type of people who are chasing experience for an end in itself. Chasing experience to validate our own faith. Chasing experience so that we can be sure that because we've had this experience, we're okay, we're gonna be okay, we're secure. On that day, Jesus will say, you are super spiritual, come here. Come on in, right here. Right? It was amazing, wasn't it? All types of ways, I think, that we worship experience. And of course, sociologists and other writers will tell us that we've now moved from a knowledge economy to an experience economy where we spend lots of money on experience for the sake of experience. And no doubt, this has translated into our understanding of Jesus and our understanding of walking with him. Now, I'm not saying there is no experience. There is experience, but the motivation and the reasons and the character that it produces are different. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Let me ask you a question. When you go to connect relationally with your spouse or with your children, do you go in thinking, I am here to have the most amazing experience in this conversation with my spouse? Or do you go in in a posture of, I really want to know my spouse. I want to know them. Or your children, do you go in thinking, I need my children to reflect to me how amazing of a parent I am in whatever they do? Or do you approach your children and say, I want to know how God's made them. I want to come alongside and pray for the work that God is doing in their life right now. What about when you go to community group? Do you go for this amazing mountaintop experience every week? Is it really about you? Do you go and say, I'm just here to get an experience, get a spiritual high because work is horrible and when I go to work tomorrow, I need to get fueled up tonight. But we know when we go to experience our spouse or our friend or our child for who they are and to connect with them, something happens, doesn't it? When we connect with a person, all of a sudden, what grows in us is this experience, this longing for their good, this longing and hope that God is at work in their life. You see what comes first isn't the experience, but it's the personal connection. And oftentimes it produces this intimacy that we never could get if we went there for the experience only. Do you chase experience for the sake of experience when you come to God? Or do you come to God to know him? Do you come to Jesus to see how beautiful he is? Because the experience that we have, we've, when we do that, we, we sung about the very first song when we sang, a, it's a wonder to feel 
our own hardness of heart depart. You see, when we experience Jesus, when we, it, it comes through seeing him. It comes through knowing him. So when he invites us in and we see him for who he is and what he's done, we do experience. But when we get the order twisted, we get the whole sermon and the Christian life twisted. You see, wholeness is not what we merely do or even what we say or even what we feel, but it's when all of these come together in submission to the Lord Jesus. When these things come together, we experience wholeness. And when Mike preached last week on the fruit analogy, it comes into play again today. When you think about tree and a fruit, think about the fruit. Does the fruit itself give life to the tree? Of course not. The life in the tree produces the fruit. It produces the life that's given in the fruit. And so the fruit does not give the tree life. In the same way, our obedience to Jesus comes from the life that is found in him. Our obedience does not give us life in him. You see what I'm saying? The obedience that Jesus calls you to actually takes place when you know him, when you connect with him. When you come to him, that gives you the life that produces the obedience. And so in the same way that we see the tree that bears bad fruit is not a good tree, we know that the person who lives the life of ordinary obedience, it's not because they are more disciplined. It's not because they are more awesome. It's because they are plugged in to the life that produces obedience, which is Jesus. And so the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to that. And I want to point out one more thing on this, this, this wholeness that calls us to the ordinary. This life comes from the fact that God's spirit dwells in Christians. And Paul in Galatians 5 actually synthesizes the Bible's teaching on what happens when the life of God dwells in us and when that life produces a certain type of fruit. And we call it the fruit of the spirit. I'm gonna read those to you. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Where do those happen? Those happen in the ordinary life, don't they? Those are the things we like to just skip over. Right? We don't want to be patient with people. That's not a virtue in our culture. We chase experience, not joy that comes from the Spirit. So you see, actually, the spectacular work that God does in your life, that the Spirit of God is interested in producing in your life, comes to bear in our ordinary day-to-day life. So we're, while we're chasing spectacle, Jesus says the spectacular work of God comes to bear in our ordinary life. And that is the life of flourishing, Jesus says. So when us to think about where are we chasing spectacular and skipping over ordinary life with Jesus. And this, by the way, is why the mission of New City is whole life gospel transformation. Because we believe the implications of what Jesus is talking about, there is no nook and cranny in your life that ought not to be affected by knowing him. So first, Jesus in the sermon concludes by reminding us that the call to wholeness is a call to the ordinary. And then lastly, 
Wholeness calls us to depth. So Jesus here, we've seen through the entire sermon, says that false disciples are only concerned with the spectacular. They're only interested in superficiality. And their main desire is to be seen by others to be important, but inwardly they're consumed with insecurity. They're only thinking about themselves. And so Jesus ends the sermon with a parable to show that the wholeness that he offers transforms the ordinary and also calls us past the superficial to inspect the very foundation of our lives. So Jesus talks about these two houses. And in the parable, the two houses from the outside look the same. If you were driving through this neighborhood, you'd look at the houses, they look the same to you. The reason is because the difference is in the foundation, which you can't see, at least not from the outside, not from a superficial glance. You have to go deep. Last year, uh, Leah and I got to go to New York City, more particularly Manhattan, twice. We had a great time. And the second time we were there, I noticed something and learned something that I hadn't reflected on before. And the question that came to me, was presented to me, was obviously those of us who are outside of New York City, when we think of New York City, we usually think of Manhattan. But of course, there are, there's more than just Manhattan in, in New York City. But we know Manhattan because of the fantastic skyline that's world famous that we know. And when you look at it from above, what you have is you see the, the southern tip of the island, you see skyscrapers, and then right in Midtown, you see skyscrapers. But everywhere else is kind of more like Brooklyn or other places. And the question that came to me is, what was it about Manhattan that made it become the spectacle that it is with all of these tall buildings? Why not Brooklyn? Why not some, one of the other boroughs? And what I came to find out is that when you go to uh, the other places, when you dig beneath the soil, it's actually very sandy. But Manhattan, just a few feet down in most places, you hit solid bedrock. And so the reason we see all these amazing skyscrapers in Manhattan is because it actually has solid rock as a foundation that the buildings can go deep into and go high. And so Jesus is saying the same is true for us. If we try to build our lives on sand and we build and build and build, when any suffering comes into our life, we'll realize this is not a sturdy enough foundation. When any hardship that's serious enough to shake our foundation comes in our life, if we are not rooted in the bedrock of Jesus, then we will collapse. And of course, he's mainly here, mostly, talking about the day of judgment. On that day, he says, if you don't have your life built, your entire life, every part of your life built on me, great will be the fall. And so many of us then, we have to reflect. We have to look at the foundation of our life. Are we building our foundation on a foundation of success? Maybe on appearance, on approval, on control or material things, social and political causes, comfort? Or is it Jesus? Is it the performance of our children? Is it our marital status? Either way, is it our own story? What is it that we're building our life on? Is it the success of our career? What is it for you? Because this is a call to self-examination. It's a call to know, 
Have I embraced a faith that is only superficial? Are there places in my life where I throw up walls and Jesus' words cannot penetrate? Because this is mine. I must control this or I will be devastated. This cannot be taken from me or I will be devastated. If I don't reach this place, then I will be devastated. If we have any of that in our life, Jesus is saying, that's the foolish path. That's the foolish path because it's not just if the storm comes, it's when the storm comes. I, don't, I haven't even lived long enough to know this. And many of us haven't. But the invitation is still now. Right? We don't just get to tragedy. We don't just get to horror in our life. And then all of a sudden move over, everything slided over to the rock. It happens one day at a time, one decision at a time, one year at a time, one decade at a time. We're building this life and we have to constantly ask ourselves when we come to the Lord, when we see his face, Lord, am I living for me or is, or is this for you? Am I building my life on the rock or is my life on the sand of anything else besides you? And the Sermon on the Mount is a gracious call. If you are hearing, you can respond. You can inspect. You can go deep. You can move past the superficial. You can come back to the ordinary and know that it's there that I experience the love of the Lord. In the ordinary, as I'm building my life, our lives, making one decision after another. So Christianity is a religion centered not first on a book, or on theological ideas, but on a person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And lastly, notice what Jesus says is the worst thing that can happen to you. What is the worst thing that can happen to you? When Jesus, if Jesus were to say, depart from me, I never knew you. The worst thing that can happen to us is to be separated from Jesus. That's the worst thing, which means the opposite is true. The best thing that can possibly happen to you is that you would know him deeper and deeper and that you would see him and experience him in the ordinary and that then the spectacular work of God by the spirit would transform your ordinary into a kingdom life that Jesus has shown us is so beautiful. And every aspiration that we had, that we sought for, every comfort, every control, Every sense of approval, everything we've been pursuing actually was a longing for Jesus. If the worst thing that can happen to us is to be told, depart from me, I never knew you, the best thing that can happen to us is for him to say, come to me. I want to know you and I want you to know me. It's a relationship. It's an ongoing, every day, one foot in front of the other, Put your pants on one leg at a time. Every day, relationship with the triune God of the universe. So you see, obedience is not the entrance barrier to knowing him. Knowing Jesus is actually the power of obedience. It's the power to obey. So this rock does not only offer stability because that could just be another ploy at control, right? And security. 
Jesus as your rock is not just for stability, but it's for life-changing power in knowing him. So when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, the invitation by Jesus to the flourishing life, to the blessed life, let's not forget where he started. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. When we come to Jesus casting everything at his feet and saying, I need you. That's all I need. I need you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you grateful for your word written to us, kept trustworthy by you throughout history, and now we have it in our hands and on our phones, and we're grateful for that. And we are even more grateful of what this preserved word written points us to, and that is you, Jesus, the incarnate word who took on flesh, who lived that perfect life for us and died the sacrificial death for us so that in knowing you, Jesus, we can be transformed. So we pray that you would call us back to the ordinary, that we would not spend our lives for the spectacular of fame in our own kingdoms, but that we would find joy, white hot burning joy in every day walking with you in the ordinariness of life-giving obedience that's empowered by you. It's in your name we pray.